0: Welcome to the Fleming Foundation series on The Best Revenge. This is episode zero. I'm joined today by Tom Fleming. Tom, could you give us an idea of what The Best Revenge means? Well, there's the old uh, proverbial expression that living well is
1: the best revenge. And so we could have called it living well... But uh, that would be too obvious, and we want to fly under the radar and deceive people. It it seems to me one of the big mistakes that uh, conservatives and uh, other people disgruntled with modern life, one of the big mistakes they make is to brood on what's wrong with the world. It's very easy to find out what's wrong with the world, and we could talk about that all day. And uh, I used to say, why light one candle when you can always curse the darkness and have a lot of fun? But, you know, if you get stuck watching Fox News all the time, or listening to Rush Limbaugh, or Mark Levin, or all of these other uh, great naysayers of, of little brain. Donald Trump these days. Yeah, Donald Trump. <laughs> that you, you, You're living somebody else's life. You're living in a different dimension. And living your own life, living in the here and now, paying attention to the everyday realities of human existence and making the most out of it. This is, uh, this is the quality, I think, that characterizes great civilizations like the, the ancient Greeks or Romans during the Empire or uh, dur- during the, uh, the great Christian age or the Middle Ages and the best people ever since. They, they preserve a certain light-heartedness, a certain good humor. A, uh, a story I always like to tell people is the the story of Hippocleides when he was uh, wooing the daughter of a very powerful tyrant. This is in the sixth century BC. Herodotus, the historian, tells the story and Hippocleides was in the lead. He was going to end up getting the girl because he was charming and witty and he had all of the social graces and he was a great athlete. But at the final banquet, Hippocleides had a few drinks too many, and he started dancing. And being a Greek, he jumped up on the table and started dancing on the table. And he uh, then started dancing on his hands, and his gown fell over his head. Now, you may not know this, but the Greeks did not wear underwear. So the father-in-law, Cleisthenes of Sicyon, the father-in-law was pretty disgusted by this time. And so he said, oh, Hippocleides, you're dancing away your bride. And he answered, U frontis Hippocleides doesn't care. And for the ancient Greeks, especially the Athenians, this became a proverb. That is, people of the right disposition, gentlemen, aristocrats, are don't spend all their life worrying about what other people think about them. They're, too, they're busy having a good time. Now... Obviously, this can get carried to excess, and you become nothing but a rude celebrity jerk who doesn't care, doesn't turn his cell phone off on a uh, on an airplane because he's too he's too into his music or his email. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the the arts of living well in an age that doesn't encourage living well. This can this could include. Everything from uh, how, to, how, how, to, how to cook a chicken over an open fire to uh, what whiskey goes best with peanuts, or uh, it can include appreciating poetry and music and literature. It's going to be, a, as they used to say, an omnium gatherum kind of program. We're going to try to talk to uh, various people who have interests. Some of them will be, might be a professional chef or a professional musician, Mostly, though, it's just going to be people who have cultivated some of the arts of living. Uh, you know, if you live long enough, you acquire enough vices that life becomes interesting. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, by vices, I mean minor vices, like spending too much time with a fly rod in your hand and a cigar in your mouth. We just smoked two very fine cigars here before the show, and uh, it's something I look
0: forward to every day. Can you give us uh, some examples of uh, men you think are living well today? Well, there there are uh, there's so many. Usually, they live in obscurity
1: because if you're busy trying to make a name for yourself, if you, I, I have nothing against Donald Trump except that he's Donald Trump. But if you spend all your life trying to be somebody in the public eye, you know, if you're on TV, if you and uh, constantly it's as if the life has been sucked out of you. You're living for other people for what they think of you. And I've known a number of people who are you know, celebrity journalists or celebrity actors or directors, and to me they seem thin and two-dimensional, sort of like a Hollywood stage set, those buildings that are just front, but there's no back to them. Hmm. So I think the the people I've known who have... uh, My friend Bill Mills, for example, Billy is not well these days, but uh, Billy and I, he's a little older than I am. We used to go fishing together. He was a fiction writer and a poet, a very fine outdoorsman, although one of the worst flycasters I've ever seen. And we may, may talk a little bit about Billy's disastrous experiments with <laughs> trying to cast a line. But, you know, he, he had a zest for living, which was not trivial. He read German philosophy and drank good whiskey. And and as well as writing some very beautiful outdoor stories, we, we published uh, a, a collection of them uh, once about, about fishing and hunting stories. And he he's he's an example of somebody. But I've known many. My my dissertation director, Douglas Young, was a man who wherever he went he would r- study the history of the area. He would bef- we, he'd, he'd become an expert local historian within a few months because living well meant sucking the juice out of life, really trying to understand where you were, where where the good things were happening. Another example is my mad Russian friend uh, Navrazov, who lives in Palermo as he likes to say, I've been rich and I've been poor And he said, and quoting, obviously, Tallulah Banquet, but Andre's answer is, but believe me, poor is better. Because being poor, he doesn't have to be somebody. He doesn't have to worry about which duke has left his visiting card on the mantle or whom he has to invite to dinner. He he can cook a, a wonderful, simple seafood dinner in Palermo, as he did one night after we had come back from going to the opera at the uh, Teatro Massimo there in Palermo, is he's, he's married to a pianist who plays beautifully. I mean, a, a young professional uh, Russian pianist. Not not everybody has uh, Navrazov's talents, but the fact is that he knows how to live, and uh, and I've known uh, so. But I don't want to be name dropping, but. Um, our friend taki Theodorakopoulos. Uh, we don't live the same kind of life but he gets a great
0: bang out of his existence well how can uh, how can an average Joe live well you know you got you got to make a living you got to pay your bills how, how, is, how does that work
1: yeah it's true and uh, one, one of uh, that this is a problem in the in the ancient world it was felt that poverty meant poverty meant Somebody who had to work for a living. That was dire poverty. Because if you, you were supposed to have inherited enough property that even if you were poor, you had a couple of servants, you could, you could use your time as you liked. This was, this was being free. Freedom was not just some kind of political abstraction for Greeks and Romans. It was a way of life. The opposite was being a slave. Being a slave meant people told you what to do. So, to live well, you need at least moral freedom. You have to know that that the people who think they can order you around and push you around, that you will only take so much from them. You really have to have that moral freedom. There was this famous song way back, what, in the 70s, Johnny Paycheck. You can take this job and shove it. I ain't working (laughs) here no more. Of course, Johnny Paycheck killed somebody in a barroom brawl, and uh, his job was spending 20, 20 years in a prison. But, um, and obviously, a man who has uh, responsibilities for his wife and children has to worry about taking care of his job. But you can be free morally. You can be free in your own mind. The, the um, freedom for, for the Greeks was was uh, the sense that you were master of your of your life, of your everyday life. So if, if you're a stoic philosopher, you say, well the, the difference between being free and a slave is that the free man does his duty because it's the right thing to do. A slave does his duty because somebody says either do it or you die. And one of the o- ec- economic objects should be, and there's a lot of talk of this actually in some evangelical circles, you want economic independence debt is the route to slavery so not not having to work all day to pay off the bills for all of the stupid things you bought because it's part of your consumerist lifestyle that's one way but the other the, the other key aspect of the word free is the word the phrase the liberal arts I used to joke and say liberal arts is uh, what they teach in college it's the art of being of becoming a liberal but originally, it was the arts of being a free man, and uh, both both the phrase in Greek and in the Latin "artes liberales" these are the these are the things that you cultivate in order to be uh, to be truly free. Um, even a man in prison can be morally free; he does his he does his duty. He's a responsible person, and if he has access to a library, he could cultivate his mind. And so it, a lot of this has to do with, with uh, mental cultivation. If you come home at the end of a long day, uh, crack three or four beers and take a couple of shots with them, as people do in my beloved home state of Wisconsin, uh, and then turn on the TV or surf the Internet all night, you're not free. You're a prisoner of a pop culture society, and you haven't done a
0: thing to cultivate yourself. What about the, uh, the question of leisure that, that you've uh, touched on, and that is that uh, computers and the Internet actually give us more leisure time? Uh... Well, they do and they don't. You know, And this is a subject
1: I think we're going to uh, approach on several shows, at least one show, completely devoted to this, because it is true that on the one hand, uh, you have rapid access to information. It is true that uh, when I when I started to write, I would some t- I had a IBM Selectric typewriter, which one one uh, friend of mine, academic friend, said uh, Thomas that's an awful lot of gun for a young scholar. Because that was, that was technologically... Regular guys didn't own IBM selectories. I inherited mine from my dissertation director, who unfortunately died uh, fairly young. And um, I would write five drafts that meant typing it, marking it up, and then retyping it, retyping it, retyping it. Now with word processing, I have, of course, a lot more time. The problem with this is, I remember the first book that the author bragged, he had written it on a word processor. It was a piece of fluff written by Jimmy Carter. It was terribly written. He didn't know how to write, but because he had word processing computer of some kind, or a word processing typewriter in those days, uh, he it meant that he had the illusion that he knew how to write because he could make it all look good. And I, I know people who, when I was a magazine editor, people would send in texts that they had already typeset and formatted. It looked like a printed book. It reminded me a little bit of. Uh, my father was a baseball team owner, and he hated the Little League because he said, if you give an 11-year-old boy a uniform and professional equipment, he's not going to do all the work that's necessary ever to become a professional baseball player. And, of course, one of his heroes was Ted Williams. When Ted Williams was 12 years old, he just sat hitting balls all day long until he could get it right. And, of course, he spent much of his life one of the greatest athletes in the history of the United States. He was a great uh, a great ball player. He was also a great uh, saltwater sport fisherman. And he was a very fine pilot in uh, World War II and Korea because he developed the skills. People claimed he had supernatural ability, he had great vision. No, no, none of that was true. He simply worked very hard at it. Now, if you get everything handed to you by technology, you never develop the skills. People who who have never written with a pencil or a pen, I don't think very many of those people ever develop into very good writers, because it all comes too easy. There's a great passage in the insane philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. I think it's in his book, Also Sprach Zarathustra, which was his masterpiece. And he said, you know, a lame man can get on a horse and ride to the top of a mountain, but when he gets off the horse, he still limps. And we have a culture based on the idea that people of no talent, ability, or discipline can get on a horse or get on a computer or, or get on any, their iPhone and all of a sudden they're masters of the universe when in fact all they are is slaves of technology. Now, for people who have cultivated their brain and their talents and their abilities and especially their ability to observe the world and to look at it, these, the, these devices can be very helpful. But that's why, for example, if I were czar of education in the United States, I would forbid the use of computers until people were maybe seniors in high school. You'd want to teach them penmanship. You want to teach them how to read books and take notes. You want them to be free, to have have the inner power, so that then when you give them these tools, they can make use of them as tools and not be slaves of the machine. And so this, this is something we're, we're going to talk about a lot. But how to make use of what we have, because frankly, uh, if, you, if you don't, if you, you have to then sort of live as a hermit in the wilderness of Alaska. But if you're living in a city or a suburb or even a rural area, the fact that you can go on the Internet and, and download uh, great works of literature. I'm, I'm a subscriber, for example, to the Thesaurus Linguae Greciae, which is a, a, it's a, a dictionary of every use of every Greek word f- from Homer down to about 1500 AD. Now, this is, for me, living in a podunk town without the nearest decent library is Madison, Wisconsin, almost an hour and a half away, and then I can't check the books out. I have to just sit there and take notes. To have these resources on the Internet, these resources of scholarship, Google Books, you know, the uh, Gutenberg.org, uh, dot, uh, dot all of these tremendous resources. But similarly with music. Frankly, in the evening, when my wife and I are sitting on the porch sipping a final glass of wine, we can, we can listen either to internet radio or on my iPhone. I've got stored all of the old recordings of Gilbert and Sullivan from the 40s and 50s, and we play it through this little speaker. Uh, And, uh, no, it's not like the big stereo system I have in my living room, but we want to sit on the porch. So there is a way in which all of these devices are liberating, but only, only if you have become independent already, if you've developed the skills. Similarly, these people take cooking courses, and they become very elegant cooks. You know how I learned to cook? And we're going to have a show on this, too. I learned to cook when I was about eight or nine years old. I was the runt in the neighborhood, and we went camping all the time. So who has to be camp cook? The well, runt. The runt. And also, they flattered me. They said, oh, boy, nobody cooks eggs like you, Tommy. Nobody, no, well, boy, yeah, bacon is really good. And I, well, wow, this is something I can do better than better than the older boys. And, you know, by the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I could, I could make a complete dinner. When I hadn't been married long, uh, well, a couple of years, I dragged my poor wife off uh, into a wilderness area in, uh, uh, in the Mount Pisgah National Forest in, in North Carolina, and, you know, we parked the car and then packed in everything we had on our backs for not too far, a couple of miles. So the first night, we packed, it started raining. She said, what are we going to eat? And I said, well, I'll make dinner. She said, what, well, bologna sandwich? And I said, no, I'll build a fire. We've got some stakes, and, you know, we'll, build, we'll we'll, do it. And she said, but it's raining. I said, my dear, you really have misjudged your husband. So I, we were, we were, I, th- I think, we weren't on the Davidson River. We were on a smaller river. And uh, I went down to the river and got the smooth, flat stones from, from the riverbank, from the, from the bed. And I built a little fireplace. And, of course, you know how to turn... Over fallen logs and trees in the forest, you find the dry wood and the old, the old leaves and the and the dried out pine boughs, and start a fire and gradually build it up. And you, of course, you you build a kind of a, a, a stove with with an overhanging uh, uh, edge on it, so that the, uh, unless it's a really terrific storm. You can, you can build a fire and cook on it. So I co- so it was a pretty steady, you know, medium rain, but I cooked us a nice dinner. I think it was the first and only time I ever really oppressed my wife. But the, that's because I had to learn this primitive skill. And when I later on had the advantage of, gee, a gas stove and a refrigerator and a kitchen... I turned into an okay amateur cook. I'm not a great cook. My wife's a much better cook. But uh, we then trained all our children to cook, and it was a family event. I'd come home from a hard day fighting with authors or whatever, fighting trying to get donors for our magazine. Come home, I'd fix myself a martini, and then I could cook a three-course dinner in about 45, 50 minutes. But it would be, you know... Garrett, you—he was my son Garrett, who is now a uh, famous chef in Washington, D.C., Garrett learned how to chop vegetables like nobody's business by the time he was 9 or 10 years old. He was great with the knife already at that age. And all my children are good cooks. They all can cook up a dinner without thinking about it, without using a cookbook, because they learned it was part of a family life. Now, of course, I could have said, Hey, kids, go off and watch TV. I'm busy. But no, I wanted the labor, first of all. But second of all, it was it's some of, I think, their most memorable ex- experiences growing up. Because this wasn't once a month or once a week. This was like three days a week. And when, when I wasn't cooking dinner, my, my wife cooked dinner more often than I did. But uh, the, same, the same thing worked. I'd sit on a stool in the kitchen and chat. The children would be busy mixing and stirring and chopping and sauteing. And it, it was a, it was a whole family enterprise it's a it's a way of active living in the here and now whether or, and that whether this includes
0: fishing and hunting or reading poetry or playing the piano well actually Tom I think uh, getting rid of some of the technology is, is the first step yeah uh, I've always been I've gone through different phases of turning the television on or off and I can tell you I, I'm actually a little happier when I when I can't turn on Fox News, and, uh, and when Betsy and I s- uh, spend some time together. I'd, I'd love to tell you that my Italian is much better, and I, and I should use the, the time to better use, but uh, shut the TV off. It's just, it's just bad for you. You're better off without it.
1: You know, we, uh, we cut the cable years ago, I mean, many, many years ago, and then when, uh, when the big digital revolution came, I don't even remember when that was, 10 years ago? In the TV yeah, turn of the century. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I refused either to buy a new TV. I had an already pretty old Sony television. And I refused to be forced to buy a box, you know, to, to hook it up. So we lost television 15, 20 years ago, whenever it was. We, we simply didn't have it. And our television set became a screen for playing videos. And until I became what is politely known as an independent scholar recently, uh, that's the way I was. Now that I've had to set up an office here in my home and we had to get internet and all that stuff, I actually went out and bought what I thought was a huge television. It's, I think, 43 inches. And the salesman laughed. Not that big. <laughs> he said, he said, for a small TV, this is, this is the best small TV. I said, what do you mean, small TV? It's twice the size of what I had. But, so now we have cable. And so I was afraid, in fact, uh, Gail and I expressed a little fear. Gee, does this mean we're going to go back to watching the evening news? Are we going to be see what's on tonight? And the answer is, we haven't watched five minutes of television in the two months that we've had it back on. It is still a video player. Now, of course, yes, I now have Netflix streaming and I'll probably get um, an Amazon streaming, I'll probably get all these things, but it's mainly to watch movies that were made before I was born. And so some use of the technology but only if you're free. I can sit in first of all, we don't have our television in our living room, It's 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 in a room that we use for guests. I can sit in that room and read with the TV screen staring at me and when I was 20, the stare would have, t- would have been a hypnotic gaze, and I would end up turning it on. Well, just, just see what's on. Now, I can't imagine turning on television and watching it. Just as an experiment, I have tur- uh, two days ago, I turned it on, and I went from Channel 2 all the way up to Channel 300 or whatever. I have the most cheap elementary cable. And you know, there was not a single thing I could have imagined watching. So we're free. Now that we're free, we can actually use it. The problem is if you grow up... See, I grew up a little bit before... We, were, we lived so far away from the nearest TV station, it was about 120 miles, that we could only get television after it was dark when I was 8, nine, ten years old. And so th- that's an advantage. And what, with my own children, we kept it... We had a, a, a wardrobe, an armoire, and I had a lock. Now this did two things. It kept the kids from watching TV when we weren't around. It also taught them how to use bolt cutters. Because <laughs> if we if we left town for two or three days, they would find my bolt cutters and and break the lock. And uh, then I would make them buy me a new lock. Is this how they learn to get into your liquor cabinet? <laughs> <laughs> I have I have put a lock on, we have a closet in the basement where I keep our wine and liquor supply just in case some of my grown children is ever tempted to sample a, a Brunello di Montalcino
0: <laughs> that, uh, that I'm not ready to drink yet. Well, this sounds like, uh, sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, the episodes as they come. We're, uh, we're planning one on uh, bacon. That's right. making Bacon. <laughs> bringing home the bacon, I think we call it. Yeah, that'll be with uh, Garrett, uh, your son. And uh, we're going to be looking at movies. and Yeah, every,
1: everything under the sun that can be used to lead a richer, fuller, pleasanter life. When, when I was a teacher, people would say, well, what's the point of learning Latin or Greek or reading Shakespeare? I mean, shouldn't we be really teaching our children how to get a job? And I'd say, all right, you're going to work how many years of your life? Let's just say by the time you get out of graduate school or professional school, 25 to 65, normal, that's a pretty long, that's 40 years of 40 hours a week for most people. Well, your sleep during that period, because what are you going to do afterwards? All these poor guys who retire to Florida and stare at TV all day. But the fact is that you're, you're in a day... You sleep eight hours, you work eight hours, you've got eight hours more. And what do you do? Those are the eight hours that are precious to you. You're not a prisoner to sleep, you're not a prisoner to the job. By the way, interesting the modern Greek word for job, zulia, is, uh, is what the ancient Greek word for slavery was. <laughs> just, that just hit me yesterday. I means I work, but also in, 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 in modern Greek, it, it means, uh, ancient Greek, it meant I'm a slave. But uh, those are those are your eight hours of freedom, five days a week, and then you have the weekends. Now, I'm not saying that a lot of professional people don't really work 50, 60 hours. But your real life is not simply making money. What, what is the Wordsworth line? Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Enough of that. Enough of that. You cultivate your mind, your talents, your abilities, and, and whether it's playing golf and tennis or cooking, there are so many things that you can do with your life without having to worry about what Rush Limbaugh says they're going to take your guns away.
0: Well, did you uh, see the article that I sent you about uh, learning Latin and how it actually it makes you smarter? Yeah, it because does. Because of the
1: discipline. Yes, and we have a, one of the what well, of course one of our podcast series is going is on exactly that how how uh, techniques. It's not going to be
0: teaching you Latin but teaching you how to teach yourself that. Well, and I, I think the other thing about, uh, from our age standpoint, is you start to get older and you want to keep your mind active. Speak for yourself, by the way. Yes, it. yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, learning a language or learning a new skill is uh, yeah. is a way to keep uh, uh, Alzheimer's or something like it at bay, I think. Well, all the evidence seems to suggest, A, that, that
1: these... These mind games they, they, they are marketing and getting rich on have no experimental evidence to suggest that they do one bit of good. Whereas human history tells us, and studies of cloistered nuns tell us, that people who use their brain regularly and do things like work with math and work with languages, that they may have all of the physiological symptoms of Alzheimer's, but they don't, but don't but their minds are clear. So, uh, yes, that you also, by staying alive intellectually, you will stave off senility. Now, maybe that hasn't happened in my case, but we'll hope that our, our listeners, that will happen to them. But, uh, yes, I look very much forward to this series. Uh, unlike some of the other series, which are going to be a little of our podcast, which will be a little more learned and pedantic, this one
0: we're doing, we can have fun ourselves, and teach others, we hope, to have fun. Tom, I'm looking forward to it. I hope our audience is too.